0: is Watch Jerusalem. Hello and welcome to Watch Jerusalem. I'm Chris Eames and I'll be your host for today's program. It's been a long time since my last program on this podcast, a little over two months, I think. And a lot has happened in the meantime. And since I do a lot of writing on the archaeology side of the magazine and the website, for the first half of this program, I wanted to do a sort of summary of some of the new archaeology discoveries that have come out, some of the articles we've posted recently, and some of the ones that we've got queued up. And then for the second half of this program, I'll take you through my new article series, a three-part series on the Israelite origins of our English alphabet. But first up, about the discoveries that have been made more recently. You can tell there's a bit of a lull in the archaeological world at the moment, or at least the world of archaeology reporting. Most of the, uh, the major Israeli uh, websites, Haaretz, Jerusalem Post, Times of Israel, they have an archaeology section or, or dedicated archaeology writers, and I think they do rely a lot on the, on the uh, publicity that they get from those archaeology articles. Uh, takes, it brings a lot of people to the website, a lot of these interesting discoveries that are made. But there's been a bit of a lull in the uh, excavation world over this past summer, and that, of course, is to do with the coronavirus, to do with the coronavirus lockdown. I think there may still be a few excavations happening in some limited form, but there has been a bit of a lull, and you can tell that by some of the archaeology articles that have been coming out, uh, some almost humorous with with the kind of uh, the, the kind of platform that they give to really quite small and usually insignificant discoveries. Still, though, o- uh, over this past summer there have been really interesting discoveries that have come out. Now, these uh, di- discoveries were made not this summer, but they were made in years past, but have only just been released. Over this past summer, two discoveries in particular, or two excavation sites uh, that we uh, summarize in our most recent edition of the Watch Jerusalem magazine. Uh, Two sites, both of them actually within Jerusalem and both of them uh, dating to the period of King Hezekiah and his reign and uh, on beyond into the reign of King Manasseh. So, as I say, those two discoveries are summarized in our most recent Watch Jerusalem magazine. If you're not subscribed to that, go ahead and do that. Go to watchjerusalem.co.il. The magazine is free of charge. It's a really high quality, full color. Uh, I think it's a 32-page magazine. So, go ahead and subscribe. Free of charge, no cost, no obligation. For that, but but as I say, the recent, the most recent magazine details these two finds in an article uh, entitled "A Summer of Discoveries," uh, and when I say summer of discoveries, the, it was a summer of discoveries being released, not necessarily the the discoveries being made, uh, because if you if you're familiar with the archaeological world, it does take some time uh, for a, a discovery to be released to the press. There is a lot of prep work that happens. There's a lot of uh, processing of the finds, uh, investigation that goes on, research. And then sometimes the, the conclusions of the archaeologists then get peer-reviewed, and then they come out to the public. Uh, so So these two discoveries in particular, I think they were made... Originally, about a year ago, but again, released over the summer were the Anona excavation site and the Amon-Hanatsiv promenade. So, just for the briefest overview, the Amon-Hanatsiv promenade that's just south of the city of David, overlooking the city of David. It's a lookout area, promenade area, and it was so back in Hezekiah's time as well. And from this time period, the archaeologists w- discovered a pretty incredible building, beautiful building, ornate building. They discovered several of the finest proto capitals that have ever been discovered. Now, these are, these are capitals that sit on top of of ancient pillars and help support the, the ceiling of the structure. So several really ornate uh, proto-Aeolic capitals that, that that are designed in a way to depict uh, palm volutes. So uh, a series of those were discovered, as well as window balustrades, ornate window balustrades. So back in the time of King Hezekiah, this is dating to probably best post Assyrian siege period, uh, once that siege was done, once Israel, or Judah rather, started to rebuild, uh, this area got a lot more developed, um, and and this royal building was established on the site overlooking the capital city. And then not too far to the west, again, still within the wider Jerusalem perimeter, we have the Anona excavation, and that is... Uh, in the Anona neighborhood, probably best known for the the new site of the U.S. Embassy that was moved from Tel Aviv. And this site happened to yield another discovery uh, related again to King Hezekiah's time period, a major agricultural center. Uh, Most notably, uh, it was found full of administrative seals, uh, about 120 of them, I believe, most of them LMLK seals, Lamalech seals belonging to the king, uh, and, and then several other royal seals as well. So those were the two big ones over the past summer. But again, we are seeing a lull in the types of uh, discoveries being made and being reported. And that is somewhat illustrated by the kind of discoveries these archaeology journalists are latching onto. Recently, their headlines were made of a weight, a two-shekel weight that was discovered as part of the Temple Temple Mount Sifting Project, I believe it was. Uh, and it, It's an interesting little thing. It's just a little uh, spherical ball-like weight, uh, maybe a centimetre or two in diameter, two-shekel weight, and we know that because it has the symbol on it for for the two shekels, and it also fits with the exact weight for what a two shekel weight should weigh, as would be expected. One shekel is known to weigh eleven point five grams. This shekel weighed twenty three grams. So with this shekel, uh, two shekel weight, there was no funny business going on with the with the weight of it, as as you might be aware. The Bible does. Uh, condemn some of the Israelites for using weights that were not correct, that weren't accurate, in order to try and swindle um, would-be buyers. And so, so this is a sh- two shekel weight that does match uh, what it should—a two—a two shekel weight. And uh, it, it's it's a nice artifact. It's it's an interesting artifact, but not normally what you would see plastered across headlines. Uh, so, so again, evidence that some of these archaeology journalists are understandably scrabbling for, for stuff to write on. Another kind of humorous one to me was the exact uh, size of the biblical handbreadth. There were some headlines on this. Some scientists had pulled together about 300, just over 300 pottery jars from the first temple period, and they noticed something very similar about these jars. The mouth of the jars were, was all exactly the same. Uh, they were all exactly the same diameter. I believe it was around 8.5 centimeters. Now, the Bible talks a lot about the hand-breadth measurement. And so, these scientists wondered, okay, have we discovered what the biblical hand-breadth hand measure was? And... It, Surprise, surprise, a biblical hand breadth is a handbreadth. And uh so so it's kind of humorous, kind of uh uh a little bit funny that these the these scientists did this this big study into what the exact biblical measurement of the handbreadth was. Again determined to be about eight point five centimeters, and they used this uh this this US Army glove measurement size, average measurement size. Uh, for U.S. Army gloves, and they compared that to the width of these rims, these these jar mouths, and they were proven to be the same size. So of course, through history, uh, you have people coming along of different sizes, populations growing taller, shorter, but the the scientists pointed out that the hand size generally, or, or the hand breadth generally, stays the same. So they were able to determine the precise uh, width of a hand breadth. And it happens to be a hand breadth. Now, evidently, as those pottery jars were being made, the, the, the ancient makers must have had their hand uh, stuck through the, the, the mouth of the jar as it was turning around their hand. And then that's, ha- that's how they got that precise hand breadth. With. So, again, it seems like some of these articles, uh, the, some of these writers are uh, kind of pulling for information, pulling for, for new stuff to write about, but, uh, but that's sort of the way it has been this past year. So, hopefully, we'll have uh, new discoveries coming along again. I think there are some limited excavations going on. I'm not too sure about that, but you never know. That's the exciting thing about archaeology, because... It, as I say, it takes a while for some of these discoveries to be made public. You might remember our discovery of the uh, Hezekiah seal, uh, or bulla rather, and the Isaiah bulla, the Hezekiah and Isaiah bullae. They were discovered on Dr. Elat Mazar's excavations in 2009 and 2010. We assisted her with those excavations. Brent Nagtegale was there uh, helping with those excavations. And um, it was probably around uh, on, on the year 2010 that those uh, those bullae were discovered, but they weren't actually released to the public until 2015 for the Hezekiah bulla. And then 2018 for the Isaiah bulla, so the these artifacts kind of are, are are a perfect picture of how long it can take for something really incredible to to be properly researched and made public. And I guess I should say with these with those bullae, there, there's more of a story to it. They were uh, misinterpreted to begin with, or or at least the Hezekiah bulla was was. Uh, mistranslated just given a cursory reading and then put to the side so it took a little while for those to come out and to to be realized what was uh, actually written on them five years for that one as I say eight years for the Isaiah Bulla. so even though we've got no excavations going on at the moment you never know what might be coming out around the corner what may have been discovered years ago That's just about to be published. But at Watch Jerusalem, we've had a steady stream of new articles ourselves, not necessarily on uh, brand new discoveries, but nonetheless on a wide range of interesting archaeological subjects and general historical matters. We've brought along a new writer to the website, Mariana Bala. You might have seen a recent article by her on the Geza calendar again, that was published in the latest Watch Jerusalem magazine. So we'll be looking forward to some more stuff from her. It's good to have a fellow uh, archaeology writer and assistant for the website. And she does a lot of work with with Brent on uh, preparing material for the site. But as I say, a number of other articles coming out on the website uh, to, to review briefly. We've, we've got uh, the Leviathan article that was just po- posted on Friday—it seems like from the numbers that that one was a bit of a hit. Uh, unsurprisingly, it's one of those subjects that I know myself as a as a as a boy. It's been something I've been interested in. This description of this really fantastical beast or, or beasts, rather, including Behemoth in the Book of Job, Job forty, describing the Behemoth, that land animal, incredible land animal. And in Job 41, the Leviathan. Or if you're using the JPS translation, which we usually do for the website, it's chapter 40 and 41 for the Leviathan. And uh, we, uh, it was a few years ago that we posted an article on the Behemoth uh, by our fellow writer Robert Morley, his article on the identity of the Behemoth. So recently I'd got to thinking, well, it would be good to have one on the Leviathan as well. That's kind of like the real, uh, even more of a challenge, trying to identify that beast. And I'd read a little bit about an archaeology or paleontology site, you could say, uh, in Egypt, southwest Egypt, Wadi al-Hitan, that uh, really has been revealing some incredible beasts some incredible sea serpent beast things that, uh, that, as I go through the article, um, are labelled as basilosaurus. King lizard is what that name means. Originally, it was thought to be a reptile uh, before it was discovered to be a type of early whale. So you've got strewn across the wilderness at the site especially, but also across the Middle East in Jordan as far away as Pakistan, you've got these Basilosauruses uh, that their, their remains, their skeletons, strewn across the desert, and and that picture really fits well with a verse about Leviathan, describing God's power, describing Leviathan being basically laid out in the wilderness. As meat for for the animals of the wilderness, and that's that picture is really painted by these sites, and and you you kind of or, or I kind of wondered about what it would be like to be in ancient times walking through these sites and to be seeing these huge uh, sea beasts, sea monsters, their skeletons just uh, strewn across the wilderness. What they must have thought seeing those, and so that that. Uh, site and those pictures of the sites sort of spurned on this article about Leviathan. So you can read more about that uh, on our website, the Leviathan article, I believe it's titled, Are These the Bones of Leviathan? And of course, as the article goes, goes through, this is an early whale, but we also look in the article at some evidence for, well, maybe this thing still lives, is there any chance that this creature or something similar still lives to this day? And there's a really interesting, I think, really interesting sort of spooky video clip from the Smithsonian Channel that we included in the article that, uh, that describes a great white shark attack in Australia just recently. And when I say great white shark attack, I don't mean the shark was attacking. I mean the great white shark was attacked by some kind of beast that these researchers try and, to, to figure out what it was. We've also had a recent article on seal stamps and how the uh, biblical use of the word for seal stamps, khotam, how it matches the archaeological Timeline. So, so this is a bit of a different look at seal stamps. Usually, we we take these like the Isaiah bulla, the Hezekiah buller, and we see if they match a biblical personality. Now, for this article, uh, it 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 highlights the the timeline of when seal stamps were used. So, on our uh, our excavations, we sometimes joke about, well, maybe today will be the day that we'll find a uh, bulla belonging to King David or to, I don't know, to Solomon. But uh, but we have a dearth of Boulay seal stamps, not just for these individuals, but for anyone in this time period. Now, why is that the case? And as this article reveals, actually the lack of seal stamps during this period matches perfectly with the biblical account I think the word for seal stamp in the Bible is used in some form about 30 times through the Bible. And you can see, based on which books and which time periods the the use of this word features in, that this matches up perfectly with the archaeological record and when seal stamps were used in the archaeology, archaeological record. And you can see a real dearth of the use of them in the archaeological record and in the biblical description during the Judges' and early Kings' period. So the article goes into more detail on that, about when seal stamps were used. Now, just briefly to cover up, uh, cover off some things to look forward to for the website, we've got uh, what I think is quite an interesting little piece on King Ahab's horses. King Ahab's horses. Now, when you think about ancient Israel— Perhaps you you don't think so much about the equine industry, horses and chariots. But it was really interesting to go through and see just how much horses and chariots feature in the Bible. Uh, chariots feature, I think, about 200 times, horses about 150 times. They're really a uh, significant, significant uh, animal in ancient Israel. But the this, the impetus for this article was a little bit different than 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 usual. So for for archaeological discoveries, us scholars often will take archaeological discoveries and use them to fact check the Bible. So the Bible will have statements, claims about something. The scholarly world will be typically doubtful of that, and then they'll take. Uh, archaeological discoveries and compare it and fact-check essentially the Bible with this so-called proof, archaeological proof. Now with King Ahab's horses, this piece on King ha- Ahab's horses, chariots, it's the opposite. Okay, so we have a steeler, a large victory uh, victory stealer, two meters tall from the Assyrian king Shalmaneser. This steeler says that he went up against a force of King Ahab the Israelite, which included 2,000 chariots. Now, that's a huge number in the ancient world. In the modern world, it is 2,000 tanks you could kind of think of, but 2,000 chariots of King Ahab. And so what this article does is look at, okay, well, is How true is this? Because scholars have looked at that inscription, 2,000 chariots, and they've cast doubt on it. Well, surely ancient Israel wasn't that powerful. Maybe the inscription refers to a different individual, maybe not Ahab the Israelite. Maybe um, with the 2,000, an extra zero was added, so to speak. So maybe he only had 200 chariots. So that's kind of been a, a... an example of the response to this inscription that it was a scribal error and what this article it tries to do is look at the biblical account look at the biblical evidence and see if there is evidence for this size of a of an equine force that the size of a of a cavalry or of of a chariot army so you can look forward to that article hopefully this week or the next week the the, the following week that article going up And then another article that we've got completed, again, waiting editing, this one about a Philistine seal. Now, Philistine inscriptions, uh, Philistine seal stamps, any of them are fascinating because very, very, very few of them exist. But what is really interesting about this uh, Philistine seal isn't the seal itself. It's where it was found. Get this? Ireland. Ireland or specifically County Dublin in Ireland. So this article, it does go through and explain uh, the Philistine seal, who it refers to, a um, Philistine king that was on the scene around the time of Kings Hezekiah and Manasseh. But but most interestingly is, again, where it was found. So this article takes you through, okay, where, uh, why was it discovered in Ireland? How did it make it? all the way up north to Ireland. So you can look forward to that piece as well. Uh, so do go to the website, check out that material. Do subscribe to the magazine if you're not subscribed already. Again, free of charge, subscribe to the Watch Jerusalem Brief. That way you'll get our daily email updates about new material that gets posted uh, that, that, that comes out every day, uh, Monday to Friday. And you can do all that on watchjerusalem.co.il. But stay with us uh, for after, until after the break, because we'll dive into my new series on the alphabet. How and why our modern English alphabet matches the ancient Hebrew alphabet even more closely than the modern Hebrew alphabet does. And we'll look at the evidence that we received our alphabet from the ancient Israelites. Stay with us. This is Watch Jerusalem, where history and prophecy come alive. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome back to the program. I'm your host, Chris Eames, subbing in for your regular host, Brent Nagtegale. And if you've missed the first half of this program, you can check out the podcast page on watchjerusalem.co.il, that is if you're listening over the radio, To this broadcast Uh, on the first part of the program, we did a recap of some of the recent discoveries that have been made over the summer and the recent articles we've got posted and that we'll have posted in the near future. But for the second half of this program, I want to talk about uh, my new series for the website, three-part series, so just a short three-part series on the alphabet, our English alphabet and why on earth... It is so similar to the ancient Hebrew alphabet. Now, if you've uh, seen some ancient Hebrew inscriptions, you might have noticed the same. Maybe, okay, that letter looks somewhat similar to our letter E or our letter A or our letter L. So that sort of started the the series off, just the... Uh, this this comparison between the English and ancient Hebrew alphabet. And so I, I wanted to do sort of like a test to, to see if I could write out some sentences, uh, some English sentences, but switching out the English letters for the equivalent Hebrew letters and see if they're still readable. So I did that. I took it around a, a few of our... Uh, our staff in the office to see if they could read these phrases. Uh, one of them, the apple of my eye. The other one, I think, therefore I am. And then the final one, a piece of cake. And each of these ones, uh, each of these sentences, written with the equivalent Hebrew letters. And it turned out they could read them. They could read them in the ancient Hebrew script. And they were kind of stunned when I told them, okay, well you you've just read that you in the ancient script that the people of the bible used that that king david used king solomon used around that time period this early script early hebrew script now why is that the case that sort of started off the series why is english so close the english script the english alphabet not not the language itself obviously our our words are completely different to those of uh, Hebrew, but why is the alphabet so similar to the ancient Israelite alphabet? And if you've uh, if you've done any research or read anything about this topic, you'll know that that several of the societies around Israel at this uh, at this early time period, this early development of the alphabet around the 10th century BCE, there, there were several societies, several nations that had the same alphabet. The the Israelites, there were the Canaanites, there were the uh, Philistines, the Phoenicians. Now, what this alphabet is generally referred to as is the Phoenician alphabet, or it'll sometimes be referred to as the Hebrew Phoenician alphabet. And the general assumption is that, okay, this alphabet started with the Phoenicians and kind of, or maybe the Canaanites, and it kind of spread through the, through the Um, immediate region, the immediate neighborhood, and then it was the Phoenicians, who were were a known trading uh, nation, known trading commodity, that they took their alphabet and spread it to the Greeks, and then the Greeks, therefore, on to the Romans, into the Latin alphabet, and from there to the English alphabet. So it's generally assumed that, okay, it was the Phoenicians that we took this alphabet from. But as the series uh, explains, we, uh, is that really the case? Is it the Phoenicians that we have to thank for creating this alphabet and or for just simply spreading this alphabet? And so this three-part series goes in detail, looking at the, uh, the Israelite record to show that actually there is a larger body of evidence to show that an Israelite transmission happened taking this this alphabet and spreading it to Greece, to the Greeks, and therefore on to the modern day, to our English, uh, modern English alphabet. So the first uh, article in the series, again, looks at the similarities, just the simple similarities between the English, modern English alphabet and the ancient Hebrew Israelite alphabet. And then the second article in the series looks at the evidence for or against an Israelite Transmission versus a Phoenician transmission, and I think you might be quite surprised to see just the contact that ancient Israel had with the Greek world and with the wider ancient world at the time of this alphabet transmission. Now, linguistic historians uh, believe it's around the 11th to 8th centuries BCE that the uh, that the Greeks picked up this alphabet. And if you look at the historical record, the archaeological record, the biblical record, you see there's actually a large body of evidence for an Israelite transmission of this alphabet to the Greek world. So that's largely covered off in the second article in the series, which just got posted And then finally, we have the third and final article in the series. It's just been completed. It's just waiting. Editing, hopefully it'll go up in the near future. And this article looks at which biblical individual may be most responsible for the spread of the Hebrew alphabet to the Greek world. And this individual is, it's probably unsurprising, it is King Solomon. King Solomon is at the time of his grand biblical empire. Now, this this Solomonic empire is is a little bit gagging to some uh, academics and scholars, just the the biblical account of the size of it, the wealth of it, the splendor of it, and the influence of it. But if you look at the geopolitical uh, layout, basically, of the Middle East at this period, in the 10th century BCE, it shows a lot of evidence for the existence of uh, a powerful ancient Israel versus a diminished, wider regional area uh, in Mesopotamia, in Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, the the Hittites, the Greeks. It, uh, this during this period there was a general collapse of everything and everyone, apart from the biblical. Uh, Israelites, apart from King David's kingdom, King Solomon's kingdom. So what this third and final article looks at is this 10th century period, right smack bang in the middle of this time period where historians believe the alphabet was transferred to the Greeks. They generally say that it's the Phoenicians that did that. Uh, Our second article in the series addresses that, But, but, but this article looks beyond that looks beyond just a transmission of the alphabet to the Greek world. It also looks at all the other cultures that suddenly started embracing the same alphabet right at this period as the ancient Israelites. Cultures that were far away from the Phoenicians, that that no evidence exists of a strong Phoenician connection at this time. you've got you've got all the nations immediately surrounding Israel that began flowering with this the use of this alphabet. You've got nations as far away as Ethiopia and southern Arabia, Nations that that did have a strong connection with uh, Solomon's kingdom. you might remember the story of the Queen of Sheba. Uh, the Bible also talks about general Arabian, States that would be uh, regularly bringing tribute to King Solomon. States that are far, far away from the Phoenician nation, the, the nation of Phoenicia. The, or it, really, at that point in time, it wasn't even a nation. It was more like city-states, Tyre and Sidon. But, but the evidence of this time period points to an alphabet spreading from Israel. Right around Israel and to the distant south of Israel, far further than the the northern Phoenician uh, area and territory. So this this article series, uh, you might be interested to, to go through that and see just how closely the letters that you write with are the same as those that King David would have written with, King Solomon would have written with, the early biblical personalities of the 10th century BCE, especially, and then finally the the conclusion of the at the conclusion of that third article on King Solomon, and uh, I think it's titled "Is Is King Solomon to Thank for Our Worldwide Alphabets?" That's the one. Is King Solomon to thank for our worldwide alphabets? We we ask the question why 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 did the Hebrew alphabet get picked up by all these surrounding societies? Did you know that 70% of all people on earth today use uh, regularly a derivative of the Hebrew-Phoenician alphabet? It it might come as a bit of a shock that nearly every nation on earth uses an alphabetical system that was derived from that Hebrew-Phoenician alphabet. And so this, for the final part of this article, this this one coming out, uh, is King Solomon to thank for our worldwide alphabets. It asks, why? Why did it spread like wildfire around the world? And the basic simple answer for that is simplicity. Simplicity. The Hebrew Phoenician alphabet was a simple system now in the surrounding area areas you had syllabaries that we used the linear B syllabary in ancient Greece hieroglyphs complex hieroglyphs glyphs in uh, ancient Egypt the cuneiform syllabaries just really complex characters that we used to write that we used to write things with you you could have up to hundreds of different symbols that you would have to know in order to write with them. Whereas for the Hebrew alphabet, the Hebrew alphabet really was the working man's alphabet. It was a language, or or an alphabet rather, that everyone could learn, that every man and his dog could learn. It was a simple 22-symbol alphabet, one sound for one symbol, simple and straightforward. Everyone could become educated in it without much trouble. And so this, this... it, it's no wonder then that this alphabet spread wildly, especially around the time of the reign of King Solomon, where you have that real strong influence that the Bible describes of that kingdom on the surrounding areas. But do check out that series and uh, and some some more of the information that it goes into as to how it was invented, how it uh, how it came about that's covered as well in the final third article in the series and it's quite interesting because it points to a hebrew origin a hebrew invention of this alphabet well that's all we've got for today's program thanks very much for joining us and if you've got any letters comments questions queries you can send those to us at our email address letters at watch thanks again for joining us and take care Till next time